Welcome to Science Story Time. Today's episode on Chapter One: The Space Merchants. The Space Merchants, by Frederick Pohl and C. M. Cornbluth, 1952. Chapter One. As I dressed that morning, I ran over in my mind the long list of statistics, evasions, and exaggerations that they would expect in my report. My section, production, had been plagued with a long series of illnesses and resignations, and you can't get work done without people to do it. But the board wasn't likely to take that as an excuse. I rubbed depilatory soap over my face and rinsed it with a trickle of water from the freshwater tap. Wasteful, of course, but I pay taxes, and salt water always leaves my face itchy. Before the last of greasy stubble was quite washed away, the trickle stopped and didn't start again. I swore a little and finished rinsing with salt. It had been happening lately. Some people blamed Concy saboteurs. Loyalty raids were being held throughout the New York Water Supply Corporation. So far, they hadn't done any good. The morning newscast above the shaving mirror caught me for a moment. The president's speech of last night, a brief glimpse of the Venus rocket squat and silvery on the Arizona sand, rioting in Panama. I switched it off, and when the quarter-hour time signal chimed over the audio band, it looked as though I was going to be late again, which certainly would not help mollify the board. I saved five minutes by wearing yesterday's shirt instead of studying a clean one, and by leaving my breakfast juice to grow warm and sticky on the table but I lost five minutes again by trying to call Kathy. She didn't answer the phone, and I was late getting into the office. Fortunately, and unprecedentedly, Fowler Shockin was late too. In our office, it was Fowler's custom to hold the weekly board conference 15 minutes before the regular opening of the business day. It keeps the clerks and stenos on their toes, and it's no hardship to Fowler. He spends every morning in the office anyway, and morning to him begins with the rising of the sun. Today, though, I had time to get my secretary's summary off my desk before the meeting. When Fowler Shockin walked in with a courteous apology for his tardiness, I was sitting in my place at the foot of the table, reasonably relaxed and as sure of myself as Fowler Shockin associate is ever likely to be. Good morning, Fowler said, and the eleven of us made the usual idiot murmur. He didn't sit down. He stood gazing patiently out at us for about a minute and a half, then, with the air of a day-tripper in Xanadu, he looked carefully and delightedly about the room. "'I've been thinking about our conference room,' he said, and we all looked around at it. "'The room isn't big. It isn't small. It's, say, ten by twelve. But it's cool, well-lighted, and most imposingly furnished. The air recirculators are cleverly hidden behind animated friezes. The carpeting is thick and soft.' and every piece of furniture is constructed from top to bottom of authentic, expertized, genuine tree-grown wood. Fowler Shockin said, We have a nice conference room here, men, as we should have, since Fowler Shockin Associates is the largest advertising agency in the city. We bill a megabuck a year more than anybody else around, and, he looked around at all of us, I think you'll agree that we all find it worthwhile. I don't think there's a person in this room who has less than a two-room apartment. He twinkled at me. Even the bachelors. Speaking for myself, I've done well. My summer place looks right over one of the largest parks on Long Island. I haven't tasted any protein but new meat for years, and when I go out for a spin, I pedal a Cadillac. The wolf is a long way from my door. And I think any one of you can say the same, right? 
The hand of our director of market research shot up, and Fowler nodded at him. Yes, Matthew? Matt Runstead knows which side his bread is oiled on. He glared belligerently across the table. I just want to go on record as agreeing with Mr. Shockin, 100% all the way, he snapped. Fowler Shockin inclined his head. Uh, thank you, Matthew. And he meant it. It took him a moment before he could go on. We all know, he said, what put us where we are. We remember the Starzelius Verily account, and how we put industries on the map. The first spherical trust. Merging a whole subcontinent into a single manufacturing complex. Shock and Associates pioneered on both of them. Nobody can say we were floating with the tide. But that's behind us. Men, I want to know something. You can tell me, truthfully. Are we getting soft? He took time to look at each of us. At each of our faces, searchingly. Ignoring the forest of hands in the air. God help me, mine was right up there too. Then he waved to the man in his right. You first, Ben, he said. Ben Winston stood up and baritoned. Speaking for industrial anthropology, no. Listen to tomorrow's progress report. You'll get it in the noon bulletin, but let me brief you now. According to the Midnight Indices, all primary schools east of the Mississippi are now using our packaging recommendation for the school lunch program. Soya burgers and regenerated steak. There wasn't a man around the table who didn't shudder at the thought of soya burgers and regenerated steak. Are packaged in containers the same shade of green as the universal products. But the candy, ice cream, the kitty butt cigarette ration are wrapped in colorful starzellius red. When those kids grow up, he lifted his eyes exultantly from his notes. According to our extrapolation, 15 years from now, universal products will be broke, bankrupt, and off the market entirely. He sat down in a wave of applause. Shockin clapped too and looked brightly at the rest of us. I leaned forward with expression one, eagerness, intelligence, competence, all over my face. But I needn't have bothered. Fowler pointed to the lean man next to Winston, Harvey Bruner. I don't have to tell you men that point of sale has its special problems, Harvey said, puffing his thin cheeks. I swear the whole damned government must be infiltrated with Conzies. You know what they've done. They outlied compulsive subsonics in our oral advertising. But we've bounced back with a list of semantic keywords that tie in with every basic trauma and neurosis in American life today. They listened to the safety cranks and stopped us from projecting our messages in air car windows, but we bounced back. Lab tells me, he nodded to our director of research across the table, that we'll soon be testing a system that projects direct on the retina of the eye. And not only that, but we're going forward. As an example, I want to mention the coffeeist pro, he broke off. Excuse me, Mr. Shockin, he whispered. Has security checked this room? Fowler Shockin nodded. Absolutely clean. Nothing but the usual State Department and House of Representatives spy mics. And of course, we're feeding a canned playback into them. Harvey relaxed again. Well, about this coffeeist, he said. We're sampling it in 15 key cities. It's the usual offer, a 13-week supply of coffeeist, $1,000 in cash, and a weekend vacation on the Ligurian Riviera to everybody who comes in. But, and here's what makes this campaign truly great, in my estimation, each sample of coffeeist contains 3 milligrams of a simple alkaloid, nothing harmful, 
but definitely habit-forming. And after 10 weeks, the customer is hooked for life. It would cost him at least $5,000 for a cure, so it's simpler for him to go right on drinking coffeeist. Three cups with every meal and a pop beside his bed at night, just as it says on the jar. Fowler Shocken beamed, and I braced myself into expression one again. Next to Harvey sat Tildy Mathis, chief of personnel and handpicked by Shocken himself. But he didn't ask women to speak at board sessions, and next to Tildy sat me. I was composing my opening remarks in my head as Fowler Shocken let me down with a smile. He said, I won't ask every section to report, we haven't the time. But you've given me your answer, gentlemen. It's the answer I like. You've met every challenge up to now, and so now I want to give you a new challenge. He pressed a button on his monitor panel and swiveled his chair around. The lights went down in the room. The projected Picasso that hung behind Schaffin's chair faded and revealed the mottled surface of the screen. On it, another picture began to form. I had seen the subject of that picture once before that day in my news screen over the shaving mirror. It was the Venus rocket, a thousand-foot monster, the bloated child of the slim V2s and stubby moon rockets of the past. Around it was a scaffolding of steel and aluminum a scrawl with tiny figures that manipulated minute blue-white welding flames. The picture was obviously recorded. It showed the rocket as it had been weeks or months ago in an earlier stage of construction, not poised as if ready for takeoff as I had seen it earlier. A voice from the screen said triumphantly and inaccurately, This is the ship that spans the stars! I recognized the voice as belonging to one of the organ-toned commentators in aural effects, and expertized the scripts without effort as emanating from one of Tildy's girl copywriters. The talented slovenliness that would confuse Venus with a star had to come from somebody on Tildy's staff. This is the ship that a modern Columbus will drive through the void, said the voice. Six and a half million tons of trapped lightning and steel, an ark for 1,800 men and women, and everything to make a new world for their home. But who will man it? What fortunate pioneers will tear an empire from the rich, fresh soil of another world? Let me introduce you to them. A man and his wife, two of the intrepid... The voice kept going on. On the screen, the picture dissolved to a spacious suburban roomette for an early evening. On the screen, the husband folding in the bed into the wall and taking down the partition to the children's nook. The wife dialing breakfast and erecting the table. Over the breakfast juices in the children's pablum, with a steaming cup of coffee for each, of course. They spoke persuasively to each other about how wise and brave they had been to apply for passage in the Venus rocket and the closing question of their youngest babbler, Mommy, when I grow up, can I take my little and girls and boys to a place as nice as Venus? Cued the switch to a highly imaginative series of shots of Venus as it would be when the child grew up. Verdant valleys, crystal lakes, brilliant mountain vistas. The commentary did not exactly deny, and neither did it dwell on, the decades of hydroponics and life in hermetically sealed cabins that the pioneers would have to endure while working on Venus's unbreathable atmosphere and waterless chemistry. Instinctively, I had set the timer button on my watch when the picture started. When it was over, I read the dial. Nine minutes. Three times as long as any commercial could legally run. One full minute more than we were accustomed to get. 
It was only after the lights were on again, the cigarettes lit and Fowler shocking well into his pep talk for the day, that I began to see how that was possible. He began in the dithering, circumlocutory way that had become a part of the flavor of our business. He called out attention to the history of advertising, from the simple handmaiden task of selling already manufactured goods, to its present role of creating industries and redesigning a world's forkway to meet with the needs of commerce. He touched once more on what we ourselves, Fowler, Schock, and Associates, had done with our own expansive career. And then he said, There's an old saying, men. The world is our oyster. Well, we've made it come true. But we've eaten that oyster. He crushed out his cigarette carefully. We've eaten it, he repeated. We've actually and literally conquered the world. Like Alexander, we weep for new worlds to conquer, and there... He waved at the screen behind him. There you have just seen the first of those worlds. I have never liked Matt Runstead, as you may have gathered. He is a Paul Pry whom I suspect of wiretapping even within the company. He must have spied out the Venus Project well in advance, because not even the most talented reflexes could have brought out his little speech. While the rest of us were still busy assimilating what Fowler Shocken had told us, Runstead was leaping to his feet. Gentlemen, he said with passion, this is truly the work of genius, not just India, not just a commodity, but a whole planet to sell. I salute you, Fowler Schocken, the Clive, the Boulevard, the John Jacob Astor of a new world. Matt was first, as I say, but every one of us got up and said in turn about the same thing, including me. It was easy. I'd been doing it for years. Kathy had never understood it, and I'd tried to explain, with the light touch, that it was a religious ritual, like the champagne bottle smash on the ship's prow, or the sacrifice of the virgin to the corn crop. Even with the light touch, I never pressed the analogy too far. I don't think any of us, except maybe Matt Runstead, would feed opium derivatives to the world for money alone. But listening to Fowler shock and speak, hypnotizing ourselves with our antiphonal responses, made all of us capable of any act that served our god of sales. I do not mean to say that we were criminals. The alkaloids and coffeeists were, as Harvey pointed out, not harmful. When all of us had done, Fowler Shockin touched another button and showed us a chart. He explained it carefully, item by item. He showed us tables and graphs and diagrams of the entire new department of Fowler Shockin Associates, which would be set up to handle development and exploitation of the planet Venus. He covered the tedious lobbying and friend-making in Congress, which had given us the exclusive right to levy tribute and collect from the planet, and I began to see how he could safely use a nine-minute commercial. He explained how the government, it's odd how we still think and talk of that clearinghouse for pressures as though it were an entity with a will of its own, how the government wanted Venus to be an American planet and how they had selected the peculiarly American's talent of advertising to make it possible. As he spoke, we all caught some of his fire. I envied the man who would head the Venus section. Any one of us would have been proud to take the job. He spoke of trouble with the senator from DuPont Chemicals, with his 45 votes, and of an easy triumph over the senator from Nash Kelvinator with his six. He spoke proudly of a faked Consi demonstration against Fowler Shocken, which had lined up the fantastically anti-Consi Secretary of the Interior. Visual aides had done a beautiful job of briefing the information, 
but we were there nearly an hour looking at the charts and listening to Fowler's achievements and plans. But finally, he clicked off the projector and said, There you have it. That's our new campaign. And it starts right away. Now, I only have one more announcement to make, and then we can all get back to work. Fowler Shawkin is a good showman. He took the time to find a slip of paper and read from it a sentence that the lowliest of our copy boys could deliver off the cuff. The chairman of the Venus section, he read, will be Mitchell Courtenay. And that was the biggest surprise of all, because Mitchell Courtenay is me. Chapter 2 One second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the out of space. Oh, please. please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the out of space. I sweat when they stuff me in the pressure suits. Bubble helmet, flash Gordon boots. Nowhere up there Outer. in gravity space. Suits. I need to Kennedy, uh -oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me into outer space. Count 